You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a ReachMD special report, cardiology news from this year's American College of Cardiology annual meeting, ACC 2008. We're in Chicago at McCormick Place on the shores of Lake Michigan. Thousands of cardiologists have convened here to listen to new research reports on thousands of studies in one of the largest medical meetings anywhere. We're coming to you direct from studios at the press room at the meeting, where we're talking to some of the nation's leading researchers about findings that could change medical practice. Join us in the coming weeks as we present a series of reports on findings from ACC 2008 of interest not only to cardiologists, but to many other health professionals as well. Our guest is Dr. Stephen Nissen, Chairman of Cardiovascular Medicine at the Cleveland Clinic, to talk to us about a very interesting trial with diabetes called Periscope. What does Periscope mean, and uh, what are you doing with this thing, Dr. Nissen? Well, Periscope uh, is a study we really designed in 2002. Now, Long before the current controversy about diabetes therapy, many of our listeners will recall that in 2007, there was a huge controversy over the diabetes drug Avandia. This was a drug that lowered blood sugar but raised the risk of heart attack. Obviously a very troubling finding because drugs are approved in the United States merely because they lower blood sugar. They don't have to show any other health outcome benefit. And then we had yet another shock in 2008 when a large NIH trial known as Accord that was targeting people to less intensive versus more intensive lowering of blood sugar showed that the people that got more intensive blood sugar lowering, that got closer to normal with blood sugar, actually had a higher mortality rate. Things are going the wrong. Is it my imagination or are we seeing more studies that look extremely promising and turning out not to work in the last couple of years. The question that has been asked over and over again is, how low do you push blood sugar? And I asked a different question in the Periscope trial. I asked the question, does it matter how you lower blood sugar? Now, the the answer to the first question was, the more you lower it, the better, or? It's mixed. I mean, the Accord trial went the wrong way. I mean, it's sort of... Uh, preliminary question, the theoretical question was if you if you lowered it more, you'd be in better shape. That's right. That's and the evidence has turned out not to support that. Well, we don't know yet. We don't I mean, know. there's mixed evidence. That's the bottom line. Right. Okay. Um, you know, so now the question you're asking is, is how do we do it? doesn't matter right. how we do it. Okay. So the study that we designed, Periscope, was a trial of two different diabetes therapies, both very popular. Glomeparide, or Amaryl, which is a sulfonylurea, which is a very potent insulin secretagogue. It increases pancreatic insulin secretion, and it definitely lowers blood sugar very effectively. The other drug was a newer drug known as pioglitazone or Actos, which works as an insulin sensitizer. What it does is it makes insulin work more efficiently in the peripheral tissues, and it lowers blood sugar by that mechanism. Now, what we did was we enrolled 543 patients, and the endpoint of the trial was a measurement of the change in atheroma volume and plaque volume in the coronary arteries measured by intravascular. So a real, a real clinical outcome, not, not a surrogate endpoint. Well, words. most people would argue that this is a surrogate endpoint, that in fact it's not death, MI, and stroke, but it is certainly a bit closer to what we care about, namely what's really happening in the for the patient's outcomes. In any case, the endpoint has been very reliable in recent years. 
So it was a hard study to do. It took a long time to enroll the patients, but we persisted. We had about 100 centers in the United States in South and North America, including Canada. And we then gave the patients either of these two drugs in a randomized fashion. At baseline, we measured the volume of plaque in the coronaries, and then we measured it again 18 months later. And the question we were asking was, did the plaques get bigger? Did they stay the same, or did they get smaller? We also collected a lot of biochemical parameters. We wanted to know what the drugs were doing to other biomarkers. Well, it turns out there were pretty big differences. HDL was raised 16% by Actos and 4% by glimepiride or Amaryl. Triglycerides went down 15% with pioglitazone, and they actually went up a tiny bit with glimepiride. And CRP, measure of inflammation in the arteries, went down 45% with pioglitazone or Actos and went down substantially less with glimepiride. So these changes looked very promising. But the real question was the primary endpoint. What would happen to the plaques in the coronary? Intravascular ultrasound at the beginning and at the end. So this is a measurement not of the, the lumen, but a measurement of the vessel wall. And what we found is that there was unequivocal progression of atherosclerosis in the glimepiride-treated patients. The p-value for progression was less than 0.001. The pioglitazone or actose-treated patients actually had a negative plaque growth. They actually went below zero, although statistically it was essentially a halting of progression. The between-groups p-value was 0.002, so a highly significant benefit of giving an insulin sensitizer Actos compared to an insulin provider, Amaryl. This is the first time we've ever seen a slowing of disease progression in the coronaries with any diabetes therapy. And in fact, it's the first time we've seen it with any therapy other than statins. Now, obviously, we've had the opportunity to publish both positive and negative trials, and we publish them as quickly as we can, whether they're positive or negative. But for patients to be able to to advance medicine means trying to find new ways to benefit patients, and I am excited. It is an opportunity now to rethink the paradigm about how you treat diabetes. If you have just joined us, you are listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. This is a special report from the American College of Cardiology's annual meeting, ACC 2008. We're coming to you direct from the ACC press room in Chicago, and I'm your host, Paul Rayburn. The two drugs are acting in the same pathway, so to speak. I mean, they're sort of attacking it, either providing more insulin or changing the sensitivity, attacking it in different places. Why would two things that in, in some sense do the same thing have, have such different results? I would actually argue to the contrary. I would argue that these drugs are diametrically opposite. The defect in type 2 diabetes is insulin resistance. It's not that patients don't make insulin. It's that they don't respond to the insulin. Pioglitazone corrects that deficit by making patients more sensitive to their own insulin. Glimepiride is actually causing them to squirt out more insulin from the pancreas. And so these are really opposite. In fact, if you measure insulin levels, which we did during the trial, insulin levels go up with glimepiride and they go down with pioglitazone. 
And that may, in fact, be the crux of the difference. I think it's also important to weigh these results with respect to adverse effects. You know, every drug has, has some adverse effects. And we saw some in this trial. In those that got glomeparide, there was a higher incidence of hypoglycemia, low blood sugars, about twice as high, and it was highly significant. There were also more patients that developed angina who were on glomeparide. The patients that got pyolidazone had more edema, and they also had an excess of bone fractures. They had, it's a well-known adverse effect of therapy with pyolidazone is that it increases the risk of bone fractures. We think that the two regimens were approximately comparable in safety, but they had a different pattern of side effects. You know, one produces hypoglycemia, the other edema. One, one there's more angina, the other is, there's an incidence of bone fracture. Overall, they look pretty similar. There is a little bit more weight gain with pyoglitazone, about two kilograms, small, but it's statistically significant. So, uh, well, untreated diabetes, on the other hand, has a few risks of its own, so I guess uh, we can tolerate some kind of risk in these kinds of medicines. Well, it's always about balancing risk and benefit. And, you know, whenever we do a clinical trial, we want to do a good job of reporting to the scientific community what were the benefits that we saw, if any, and what were the hazards we observed, if any. And I think we got both of those, you know, well represented in this manuscript. Now, the, our audience, as you know, is uh, medical professionals. Should physicians and others change their practice in regard to this study, or is it too soon yet? No single study should change medical practice, and it really should generally be changed when you have clinical outcome studies, but I think it's very relevant in the choice of drugs for diabetics. I want people to read our manuscript to make their own mind up about whether they find it a compelling enough story to want to change what they do. I think some physicians will, some physicians will wait. The bottom line is we now know there is a difference in how you lower blood sugar, and we think that's potentially very important. Is this submitted for publication, or has it appeared this yet? This is appearing simultaneous with presentation in the Journal of the American Medical Association. At the time I present, the paper will be available Simultaneous online. with presentation here at the American College of Cardiology. That's correct. Simultaneous presentation. Of now, let me ask you one question that's a kind of question uh, people in my business might not have asked a few years ago, but we can't help but ask now, which is, what's the cost difference uh, between this new drug and the older drugs? Is that going to yeah. be a potential problem? I can't quote you the exact costs, but they are substantial. Glimepiride is a generic drug now. It's no longer under patent protection, and it would be considered a very inexpensive drug. Pyolidazone or Actos is expensive. I would think it's several dollars a day. I don't know the exact cost because it's not something that I really look into, but there is a cost differential. I would also point out, however, that the outcomes in diabetes, the cardiovascular outcomes, are also very costly. So in factoring the cost-effectiveness of a therapy, you have to look at its efficacy as well as its cost. So this looks like, I mean, this looks like it might do well in that equation when we... Well, I think we have really to, we would have math. to do a pharmacoeconomic analysis, but the bottom line is, yes, it's more expensive, but there's some pretty compelling advantages. Well, thanks very much for taking the time to chat with us here at the cardiology meeting. My guest has been Dr. Steve Nissen, chairman of the cardiovascular medicine department at the Cleveland Clinic. Thanks for being with us. You have been listening to a ReachMD special report, cardiology news from this year's American College of Cardiology meeting, ACC 2008. This is the latest in a series of special reports from the ACC 2008, coming to you direct from the press room at McCormick Place in Chicago. I'm your host, Paul Rayburn, and this is ReachMD XM 157, 
the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments. Please visit us at ReachMD.com where you will find a program guide and podcasts of current and previous shows. Thanks so much for listening.